For years, conservative Christians have been accused of being too willing to believe the teachings of an ancient book without evidence and without good reason. In contrast, many prominent atheists have argued that science is the only reliable means of ascertaining the truth. In short, if you can't prove something via the scientific method, it's probably not true. In our interview today, I'm talking with Mitch Stokes about the many problems with an atheistic worldview, including logical holes that skeptics often prefer to ignore. Mitch serves as a senior fellow of philosophy at New St. Andrews College and is the author of How to Be an Atheist, Why Many Skeptics Aren't Skeptical Enough from Crossway. Let's get started. Well, Mitch, thank you so much for joining us today on the Crossway Podcast. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. So uh, this is the first question. We're, we're going to dig into this issue of apologetics generally, and uh, in particular, uh, some lines of argumentation that can be used with atheists and trying to understand their worldview and maybe unpack it a little bit in different ways. Uh, but before we kind of dig into the weeds on that, I wonder if you could share a little bit about how you first got into apologetics yeah yeah so i um i've always been kind of a skeptical questioning i mean probably sometimes too much so kind of a growing up just a little bit of an anti-authoritarian <laughs> and contrarian so it wasn't and it wasn't necessarily virtuous but um that's kind of my temperament and then i when i went to so in college i studied engineering and uh, became a Christian then. I mean, I grew up in the, in, a, in the church, but I don't know if I would have said I was a Christian before then. But certainly in college, um, I, I understood the gospel. And by then I was, um, I think I understood. But there was so, I had so many questions mm. about how science fit in with Scripture, even philosophical questions like how can God, for example, pay attention to every single person all, you know, he's watching you and everything you do and cares about every single thing and me and billions of, you know, yeah, just all kinds of questions. And there weren't really, I didn't have access to the answers. Hmm. I didn't even know that there was a, a literature out there or people that people had thought about that. Um, I'd... Uh, so after college, it was actually when I was doing my master's in engineering, I had a real crisis of faith. Hmm. Just when I'd pray, I'd be like, I, am I, you know, it was just, I was so distracted by whether or not God existed that yeah. I couldn't yeah. pray and I couldn't read scripture without going, is that really true? But I had friends in, at church who were going to seminary and they had, they started handing me all kinds of resources on like, hey, here's some philosophy, here's some apologetics. Here's it. And I was like, oh my gosh, the people actually have thought about these questions before me and actually have really good um, answers. So that was a huge, that, that was such a turning point. Uh, eventually, as I studied at the seminary, I felt called, my wife and I were praying about this quite a bit, like, okay, what should I do? I was, I was an engineer at the time, um, had graduated. But I wanted to teach. Hmm. I wanted. I didn't want people to go through some of the same things that I had gone through unnecessarily. So I wanted to teach this and say, "Hey, look what look what I found." 
and uh, yeah, I ended up going back to school and getting degrees in philosophy. Hmm. That's such an interesting comment about your own background and how you had all these questions that you didn't have answers for for a long time. And it makes me think of, you know, we live in a world today, an era today, where this phenomenon of deconstruction uh, of ex-evangelicals is such a kind of a hot topic issue right now. And it seems like one of the common refrains you hear from people who leave the faith, especially leaving a more conservative evangelical uh, version of Christianity, is that they weren't allowed to ask questions, that their questions were pushed aside or ignored, or they were even uh, made, made to be ashamed of questions that they were raising as young people. Um, is that part of your story? Is that, is that what you're talking about here? Or was it just you weren't even aware of uh, where you could find answers if you had it was it, it was a little of both. Um, there was a sense of, you know, hey, I've got this question. Can you answer? Can you answer this? And people, I think I've made people uncomfortable, um, not just with the, how I asked. I would generally, you know, I wasn't combative or anything like that. It was just people didn't, the people I had talked to hadn't asked those questions, didn't know the answers, and it made them feel pretty awkward. Mm. You know, like, I'm just glad I believe kind of thing. So there was part of that. Um, that was part of it, but then there was also just I didn't know anything else existed. Yeah. So, so is that a problem that you see in the church? You, you're coming from this. Um, you're now in a spot where you have studied these things. You you value, as you said, the skepticism, and I want to get into that the, the the virtue of skepticism, as you call it later. But is is there something wrong uh, when we aren't kind of uh, embracing young people as they question things and kind of helping them along. Yeah, I think it's it's probably twofold. There's a, I'm sure we could do a better job. And again, every church is different, every community is different. But I think overall we can do a better job of making the questions. Um, a, hey, look, it's okay to doubt. It's okay to have questions. And come, you know, ask ask them. So feeling comfortable just asking, um, I do think that there's some, it, and this this goes to a, the reason I'm pausing. There's a, this is a deeper problem I see in um, the church is just there's a in many particularly conservative churches I think is a lack of um, transparency and vulnerability. You know, hey, look, I'm struggling with this or I'm struggling with it. not just when it comes to this, but when it comes to, hey, I've got this sin that I can't take, you know, whatever it is, there's a, I'm, I'm having trouble with my kid. Wow, everybody, everybody else's kid is doing so well, or at least a lot better than mine. And mine are just like little demons, you know, like they, they just feel so isolated and alone. And I think this is one aspect of that. Now it's not, no one's doing this on purpose. It's just part of, uh, you know, the, the sociology of it would be interesting to get into, but I think just having that, you know, I don't want to use vulnerability in the sense that it's just, Hey, you know, let me share everything that I've ever felt right. and all my feelings are right or anything like that. But it's still a, Hey, no, I totally get what you're struggling with. Mm. And here's how I've, here's how I dealt with it in my life. Yeah. Well, so in, in this apologetic book that you've written, you you do say something in there that relates to this. You call skepticism a virtue. 
uh, at least in some form. So I wonder if you could unpack that. What do you mean by that? And, um, and, and how might that apply to what we're talking about here? Yeah, yeah, it's a, a, a certain kind of skepticism is a virtue. There's a there's a type of skepticism where it's just, you know, I'm not going to believe anything and you pick and choose kind of the things you're going to be um, skeptical about. And because you're skeptical, you think that, you know, you think you have this this virtue of this intellectual capacity that other people don't. Um, the 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 pick and choosing is is one thing the the virtue of it is just and this go this is so important for today just the the way we get our information and data whether it's from about science or about theology or about the news or whatever we're studying we just don't I, and i think this is as a culture um, we don't really understand how humans know things the what what philosophers call the epistemology of it the study of knowledge and it sounds like that's an obscure kind of pie in the sky sort of um, topic but it's actually so fundamental that it affects every single area of our lives and this is this is something that I think we should be properly skeptical in the sense that we know our intellectual limits and each of us has different intellectual limits because we're we have different experiences access to different kinds of information different reasoning abilities different experiences all of that and knowing yourself intellectually is a huge part of it but then also knowing generally oh is this kind of source reliable is this kind of source reliable what exactly am i what evidence am i weighing Mm. and all of that I see, and this is this is one of the things that I I just one of the reasons I, I wrote this book isn't just to show how to be skeptical, but it was really also how to think fundamentally about really the two most important things that we deal with, which are facts on the one hand, whether or not something is true, and then our values, whether or not something is good or bad. Hmm. You know, so you have, say, you have a painting. The painting's there or it's not. Okay, there's a painting. That's true. Uh, now the question is, is it a good painting? Well, that judgment of good or bad aesthetics or an action that's right or wrong, those are two different things, and we have to think about them properly in order to really, you know, and here's the thing, staying going on one side where you just believe everything because you're this you know intellectual vacuum cleaner you just suck everything up and you believe it or you go to the (laughs) other side and you go you know what we can't know anything or you're somewhere you have the you think you're in the middle because you trust some things and you don't trust other things but it's really the reason you trust them and don't trust them have a lot to do with the kinds of things you love and value Mm. and you know it's really much more of a subjective kind and you need to know that too yeah yeah, it seems like those two things, you know, what is true, what are the facts, uh, what's true news versus fake news, to, to put it in the language of today, and then the issues of morality and ethics, what is good, what is beautiful, those, uh, those couldn't be more relevant. It seems like those issues and the epistemology of that is, is so relevant today when so much is being questioned and challenged. 
Um, and one of the core arguments of your book is uh, that atheists themselves, those who who claim to not believe in God and, and are often, uh, you know, pretty, at least in terms of the, the broader culture, there is a, a certain power to atheism, it seems like today. Um, they are not actually as skeptical as they think. Uh, you have this amazing quote. You're right. One of atheism's virtues is its avowed skepticism. Yet many unbelievers, it seems to me, don't take their skepticism seriously enough. So I wonder if you could unpack that a little bit more, because that gets to the core of what you're doing. Uh, what do you mean that they don't take their skepticism seriously enough? Yeah, so there's this... Um, I, I totally appreciate and understand people be, what, what kinds of questions people would have, say, about religion and about Christianity in particular. And, and I get that, and I'm sympathetic to it. But the problem is this sort of skepticism that I see towards and actually both, you know, everyone does this to some degree, but this kind of, it's almost like an uh, atheist, atheistic fundamentalism where you're so, so certain about things that you care about and like and want to believe and are so skeptical of anyone who differs from that, that it, it, it obscures the subtleties and the nuances that have to be put. I mean, we're, when we're talking about God, and we're talking about philosophy, and these aren't simple answers. And to say, oh, yeah, there's no shred of evidence for God. I mean, all of a sudden, if you, if, if you, if you say that to anybody who's studied evidence at all in philosophy, whether they're atheists or not, they're going to be like, well, you just totally discredited yourself by mm. overstating your case. Yeah. Now, granted, I would say that, hey, if you said, you know what, there's not enough evidence for to convince me. Fine. There's some evidence. Those kinds of things are much, we can, we can start to talk about those. But the moment someone says there's not a shred of respectable evidence, then you go, you know, I don't know if there's a conversation to be had here because it doesn't seem like you're really intellectually aware of evidence and how to think about it. Mm. So is that is that a widespread problem in your mind, or is it is it just that there's like some prominent maybe atheistic thinkers who tend to to overstate things a little bit, and, and it'd be like most atheists would be far more careful and nuanced in how they're thinking about these things. Yeah, no, that's a great question. That, and, I, and I do think that there are more of the loudmouth types, like the Dawkins and Hitch, you know, that I, uh, I don't know if they really believe the statements that they make, those extreme statements, but when they say things like that, you go, you know, I, we're not going to have much of a conversation because you really just don't understand the issues. And so it's really hard to do. And, but I do think that, so there are lots of people who are not believers who do maybe not something to that extent, but are still overly confident and under aware of some of the subtleties. Now, I, saying that, I see this on the believer's side too. Hmm. I mean, this is one of the disconcerting things, particularly in the last few years, as you start to see 
people interact um, by way of the media and social media. And it's, it's really disturbing to see both sides polarized like this. With, and they're talking way up about things that they, they've disagreed way upstream. They've disagreed on things long before, but they don't realize it. And so they talk about some of the details without talking about some of the fundamentals. Mm. Like, where do standards for morality come from? Where do standards... Uh, what, what's the nature of this kind of science and its evidence? What there's what's the nature of testimony what's the you know there's all kinds of things that go on i'm just surprised that people are as adamant as they are that's one of the things that's disconcerting now at the, again at the same time i don't mean you can't say anything at all there's a balance there and that's the thing and that's the hard part it's easy to go into one of the two ditches where you're confident about this or confident about that and you go okay the other side's they're a bunch of idiots and it's like almost any view that you talk to about someone that we talk to um with someone has some evidential points on the scoreboard Mm. you know it's not like it's your team whatever it is uh, you know whether it's back let's say vaccination versus on non-vaccination you know to pick a non-controversial topic yeah no just to exactly um they, there are arguments, there's evidence that, okay, yeah, I can understand where anti-vaxxers are coming from. Yeah, I can understand where people who are for, but it's the, when both sides say the other side doesn't have anything going for them and just ignores it completely, Hmm. ignores any other arguments completely. Now that's not to say that one side doesn't have way more evidence than the other side. But there's also a time where you go, you know what, there, here's some words that you need to learn. Three of them. I don't know. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, I think about the, the, the whole COVID thing. I just kind of, um, I would say I chuckle, but it's not funny, is how many people have very strong opinions about it, either side, and very little self-doubt and I think, well, where are you getting your information? I mean, first of all, let's say you were a scientist and you were in the trenches and you had data. Even then, you wouldn't have enough data to go, yeah, no, it's totally, here's a, it, you, you, the data is still coming in. But not only that, we just don't have tons of data right now. And most of us who are getting our data are getting it from the internet. You know, it's like, that's not a good, that's not... Uh, Hmm. So there's all these, um, so anyways, in the book, what I really, a big part of it is just how do we think carefully through these without, you know, think about it in, in a, with the subtleties and the complications that are necessary without overcomplicating it. It's not like you can't say anything about something, but that's hard to do. You have to stay on the road hmm. and not in, you know, either ditch yeah well and it seems like all of us whether it comes to questions of you know questions of the day vaccines but then obviously the questions of god do we believe he exists or not we all think that we're using reason we all view ourselves as being logical and reasonable and rational and and yet you make a comment in the book that i think kind of gets at your main point here 
uh, you write that belief and unbelief are each far more than a matter of reason. Uh, so what are you getting at there? Uh, what are some of those subtleties and nuance to how we come to believe or not believe things uh, that we need to understand better? Yeah, um, good. I mean, that's a, you might think, um, you know, when I talk about the epistemology of science and how science knows things, that it's this super technical topic that it it's sounds only technical. applicable. What's that? It sounds technical. Epistemology of science is a, that right there is an intimidating phrase. But really what it is, it's how do we know stuff and how does science know stuff? Well, science, scientists, are, most of them are human too. And most, and so they have to believe the same way other humans do. So when you look at how do humans know things, what is the level of certainty they can have? And, and looking at science, I think it's science is just something that we, uh, it's so amazing and we know so much and it's, um, I'm very much, I, I'm not a anti-science guy or it's us versus them. I think it's great. Um, I th- looking at the way science knows things and comes to its information and its knowledge is so important because, and this gets back, this is a long way of getting back to your question. There's a type of inference that normally goes um, on in science that we do all the time. You look at the things that you can observe. That's it. You, you, you smell them, you taste them, you see them. Most of the time it's, it's observation, seeing them. Then you've got to come up with an explanation or a story of why those observations look that way. You know, so I, I, one, of the, one of the things I, I, one of the examples I use is, okay, I come outside my, my back door. Um, I come out into the yard. I see that the gate's open. And I go, okay, that's my observation. The gate is open. Okay, the gate's not supposed to be open, and so I think, what are the what are the different explanations for why the gate is open? Do I need to tell talk to the kids again? Do I need <laughs> to call the cops? Do you know, what what is the explanation behind that simple observation? Well, what I do is there are multiple explanations for that possible explanations. You know, it could be someone broke, someone came in and stole my lawnmower. It could be the kids left it open. It could be I left it open. It could be something as improbable as, um, you know, my dog without, even without opposable thumbs opened it. (laughs) You know, there are these now different in the way we weigh and judge which explanations are the most plausible given everything I know, plus my observations that's called inference because you're inferring you're not you're you're doing you're reasoning inference to the best explanation and that's really just you're you're trying to come up with the best explanation that's how we come up with quantum theory that's how we that's how we know that there are electrons that's how we know that there are quarks we don't see them directly but we see these other things and so we go given Given the theory of special relativity and given the theory of quantum mechanics, what's the most likely story or explanation for that? Well, that's how we all know things. And so a lot of the subtleties and the nuances, first of all, you have to know that there's this observation and then an explanation or observation theory. 
and, and I tell this to my students all the time, I look, you have got to start thinking of the world in terms of those two categories when it comes to believing things. What exactly are you observing? What's, why do you explain it that way? Hmm. Now, some of the things that go into judging whether or not something's a good explanation is what kinds of things you already think are more plausible. Like if I didn't believe in aliens, I wouldn't, you know, I'm obviously, that's not, that's going to be a non-starter of an explanation for why the back door is open. Right. Or if you didn't have kids. The gate's open. Yeah. Or if I didn't, exactly. So if I, if it's like, okay, my kids aren't doing it because I don't have any kids. So that explanation's off the table. And what you'll find is re- values in those kinds of things, not just your own experiences, but, but values. Like what, how, how much do I want this to be true? Hmm. You'd be surprised at how, I mean, that, and we all do that. We all have to, like, you know, if I already believe that God exists, I might think that this argument's a little better than someone who doesn't think, you know, I yeah. might think the best explanation for humans is that ultimately God's, there's a designer behind it. Hmm. So that's the key, is just knowing that one bit, you know, what are we observing? What are we not observing? And so much of what we believe is not what we directly observe. Yeah, yeah. And we have to understand how we come to those beliefs that they're more than simply, yeah, that observation that we're, we're directly seeing. And related to this, you argue that science and morality, uh, these two areas that kind of hit on belief, they, they relate to these things. You say that they fall, they fall along the all-important fact versus value divide. Uh, can you unpack that concept for us? Yeah, so this, the, the fact-value divide, um, I, I was mentioning this before, it, there's things, that, just the facts of the, you know, whether or not that's a, there's a painting there, what its properties are, what colors it's made of, and then whether or not it's a good or beautiful painting. Those are two different things. One's, a f- one's facts that we all agree on. The other is a judgment which we may not agree on, and it has to do with the, you're giving it the thumbs up or the thumbs down. Even if we all agreed on it, you know, said, oh, no, that's beautiful, and we all give it the thumbs up, that's still a value judgment. So when it comes to, say, science and morality, science is one of the reasons that it's such a big, important topic is because it's a really good way to know facts. And we, I mean, we know so much about the world and know, and we're starting to discover how little we know, which is also fascinating. Knowing what you don't know is a really wonderful thing too. So mm. science a lot of times just deals with facts. Now, just, I say that's an overstatement. And then ethics on the other side is what is right and what is wrong. That's on the value side. Now, both of these things we care strongly about. Science we care strongly about because we care about the way the world is. That's just how we're hardwired. We like, we, Paul talks about that. You know, we look at creation. There's something that seems to be hardwired in us that we just think God or wonder or whatever. And then when it, he says in the next chapter, everyone has the law written on their heart. So there's something there too that in us that cares about the good and the bad. Hmm. And so those are the way. That's why these are really so such big topics today when it comes to talking about God because they're 
you know, we have very strong beliefs about what the world is like and what good and bad are. Mm-hmm. Well, and it seems like when uh, Christians are quick to kind of point out, you know, like, oh, my belief in morality is rooted in in God. Uh, he's the one who gives us that meaning uh, and an understanding of right and wrong. And, and maybe we're quick to kind of then point out and ask questions of the atheists. How, how do you believe uh, in right and wrong? How do you believe in a good or a beautiful? Uh, what would the typical response be from an atheistic perspective? Well, so, so, an atheist who's thought about this, um, well, it's fun. It, it, there are different, different, uh, different responses, but the the main one is: look, I don't need there to be God to know that. You know, I don't need to believe in God in in order to know that murdering is wrong. Hmm. And 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 I think that's totally true. And that the Bible is clear about that. That they. Yes, people who don't believe in God are often just as appalled by evil in the world as we are. We're hardwired that way. That's how the question is not so much why do you like the good? Why do you call it good, for example? Well, part of it is because you like it and why you refrain from evil. It's really how do you explain this objective standard of morality if there is such a thing that's independent of your opinion and my opinion Hmm. so it's really more again here's another way inference of the best explanation so we have let's say we both agree that there's this objective right or wrong and that it's in you know torturing you know torturing someone just for fun we know that that's wrong and we both agree and we think that no matter what you think that's wrong now we have that fact that observation so to speak why what's our theory behind that that explains how we can have this you and me independent standard so it's basically you hold up a ruler and go all right we both agree that there's this ruler this particular one this standard I'm saying, let's say, let's say you're the theist or you're the Christian, I'm the atheist. And you say, I get, God gave us this standard. You can say, and where do you say this standard came from? What about this other standard? And some, another person's walking by with their own ruler in their back pocket, their own moral standard. And you grab that and you show the, you show me and you go, why isn't this the right one? And so now you have these competing rulers or standards how do you get away as you know from this relativism with respect to standards mm. you know, so it's more of an exp- you're, so the big thing is trying to explain how you can have an objective human independent ruler or standard yeah. and a lo- I, I know lots of atheists now who are thinking about this say we can't yeah well that's what I was going to ask because it seems like there are more and more uh, atheists or maybe agnostics at times who who kind of embrace the idea that life is fundamentally meaningless. Uh, and examples of this worldview would be things like nihilism or uh, a more recent term I've heard, uh, absurdism. Uh, so I wonder, would someone who kind of admits, yeah, I don't think there is ultimate meaning, I don't think there is an ultimate right or wrong, we sort of have to just muddle our way through life and, and make the best 
do the best we can do without those absolutes. Uh, does that kind of uh, circumvent the argument that atheists aren't really thinking carefully enough about why they believe what they believe? No, I actually think that's an excellent position to hold if you're, I mean, that probably at this point, if I lost my faith, I would, and I, I became an unbeliever, that's exactly what I would think. Having thought about this, I'd be like, you know what? And it, now here's the question though. Um, I think people who think that if they've really thought about it they're it's one thing to say that and say, yeah, I mean, I've met, I've met many people and talk with them and say, yeah, no, there just isn't a, you know, it's, it really is survival of the fittest, but thankfully we all decide not to kill each other and all that's fine. Imagine though, and some people do, and I think this is great. This is being very consistent. What that would entail about everything about how, mm-hmm. I mean, if you're just, if there is no morale, there's no right or wrong, there's no good or bad. Now, it doesn't mean you can't behave a certain way. No, no, hey, f- go ahead and believe, you know, act. You can behave any way you want. It's, you have to think differently about the world fundamentally. And you have to be able to say things like, oh, yeah, I guess what the, Taliban's doing isn't right or wrong. I just happened. It just happens to not be what I'm into. Mm -hmm. I just don't like it. Yeah, but you don't hear people saying that very often. You you don't. You don't hear people when it comes down to like the real things, real life. Maybe this is your point. People don't often uh, act or even speak consistently on this point. Yeah, and so think about all the political back and forth. Just about you know, let's just take, let's make it really simple. There's conservatives and liberals. Let's say that that's a, those are the two categories and those are the only two categories. If you hear, if you just listen for like 30 seconds, you realize that all of these debates are predicated on there being an absolute standard that we all, that's in play. Rather than, you know what? I, I haven't heard yet. I mean, maybe there are. You know, it's like, look, there is no moral standard, but this is what I want to happen, and so this is what I'm going to hmm. campaign on. Yeah, I hope you'll agree with me. Yeah, and if you don't, hey, you know, but 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 whenever you hear the, I mean, the hot debate you had mentioned, like things have changed a lot over the last few years, and all of the conflict depends on some objective moral standard. Hmm. People are making strong, objective moral claims. This is wrong or this is right. They're not kind of uh, deferring to, my opinion is that this is right or wrong. Right. And it wouldn't be, and they even if they say it's my opinion, the question is, okay, let's say that's your opinion and you're just acknowledging, yeah, you don't know for sure. But is there ultimate? Could anyone be right or wrong? Could you be wrong about a moral position? Hmm. Could you be right about a moral position? That's that's the question. And if the answer is no, there is no right or wrong. That world, the way you see it, will look so different. And that's the big. This is where I think stories and 
you just have to you have to go behind and underneath and through the reason and start to get so it's easy for someone to say yeah no i there's no morality but to feel it to believe it and for it to, and to see it in every single thing hmm. makes the, that world is i'm not saying people can't do that but and i think people do that and they some of them have the temper temperament such that they'll despair and that's it they're they're done they clock out of life. So maybe taking a big step back, um, how would you actually use this kind of argumentation or, or, or talk with an atheist in conversation and help them to kind of uh, discuss these things? I guess, are there examples even from your own life and conversations with unbelievers where you kind of tried to help them understand this? I wonder if you could practically share tips to that, to that end. Yes, this is, a, this is a question that I get all the time. Um, from students and, and readers is, okay, it's one thing to know this stuff. It's another thing, you know, there's a lot of information here. Now, how, how do I tell people or talk to people about it? It's kind of like, there's, there's no recipe because so much, and this is where I think fundamental reality fundamentally comes down to relationships between persons. You know, I think that's the most valuable thing. We see that in the Trinity. You know, ultimate reality is with this relationship between mm. three persons. And the reason the cross was so horrific is partly because that there was some sort of upset of that closeness of relationship. All that to say is like when you're talking with another person, it's one thing for me to talk to you. Where, you know, we're kind of talking about these ideas. But then if I'm, let's say I'm talking to you and you're an unbeliever and you, you know, I make it sound like it's, it's a lot easier and simpler because I'm not, you know, in the book, I don't really have an, I'm not having to deal with a human being. I could just state it. You know, I could state all these facts. It's kind of like having a lecture, but then when you're dealing with a person, it's going to depend on that person. Like you're going to, you know, I mean, generally I just, I would like to avoid being a jerk as much as possible. You know, I want to love my neighbor. And that's going to look different in different situations. Someone might, you know, it depends on their questions. Where are they coming from? What are, how are they hurting? What are they feeling? Are they angry? Are they, and why? And, it, and it's a, you're not trying to sell people on something. You really are. I think all of this has to be organic. Like you have to know this stuff in your being. And then when you interact with people, you love them in the in various ways, and some of this will come out in your conversations. Mm, yeah. Now it could be, hey, we're, let's have coffee and talk about God. I mean, that that can happen, and when that does, you still have to be you. You want to love that other person, and so it depends on where they're coming from. Mm. You know, if they've just had someone die close to them, or they're suffering from cancer, and they're about to. You know, talking about well, there's a rational, you know, there's a rational explanation for why God allows evil. That might not be the best tack to take. Now, it might be they're like, I don't see how this. They ask, mm-hmm. how could this? How could a good God allow this? You say, you know, I don't know. I don't know why He does. Here's how I do. Here's how I, I rationally explain it to myself, here's what the Christian story says, here's why 
the Jesus life and death and God's love is so compelling and you have rational reason, but again, it has to, if you have like a formula, like you don't go, Hey, you, you know, it's not like the, um, Dale Carnegie, how to, you, know, you have this recipe for how to win, you know, make friends. Yeah. <laughs> like if you had a recipe like that, that doesn't mean that there aren't general rules. Like, Hey, be kind to them, ask them yeah. questions, things like that. But like, Hello, my name is Mitch. What is yours? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think that kind of goes to even sometimes the ways that we think about apologetics in general. We, we do sometimes view it as, hey, I, I got to learn my arguments, learn my proofs. And once I get them locked down, you know, if I deploy them correctly, it, it will sort of prove, you know, and, and prove in a way that an unbeliever can't, can't do anything but accept you know, that God is real and that he exists and that we should follow him. Um, but yeah, do you, do you have like personal examples from your own life where you sort of had to learn that lesson the hard way? Yeah. My whole life. Like that's pretty much (laughs) been the exact, like the, particularly like the first 10 years after I, um, started studying philosophy and apologetics, I thought I just, and then now I think, wow, that was, I've had to learn the hard way. And when you're talking, when you're doing, let's say doing apologetics, it's more like just planting seeds. You, if you expect it to grow right there, you're going to be really disappointed. Hmm. Humans are not usually that simple. Now, it may be, whoa, this pr- seeds have been planted before, the, the soil's just right, and you do see someone go, hey, I never thought of that. But if you go in expecting that, like almost no one changes their mind that quickly about these most important things in life. Hmm. Yeah. It just takes a long time. That's such a helpful metaphor, that of planting seeds. Uh, we're just kind of there to plant some seeds. So, because uh, I maybe elaborate on that a little bit, because I, I might think that somebody could hear you say that, and maybe they've even experienced this themselves, uh, and just kind of wonder, is apologetics, you know, intellectual apologetics like this really of any value? Is it really all just come down to relationships, like you said before, and and praying and hoping God saves them? But like, there's really not a lot of value in trying to intellectually uh, engage with somebody on this stuff. Yeah, that's that's a great question. And I think what, what it's predicated, this is one of the things, a question like that's predicated on there being this distinction in a human between reason and their values and what the person is really whenever you talk to someone you're using reason you know you have to hey you tell them anything at all factually or you're always reasoning so it's not like there's this separate compartment we often talk like that you know there's reason and that just makes it easy for us i don't think there's anything terribly wrong with that talking like that but when it comes down to it thinking you know the people are not when you when you when you present the gospel that's an argument basically here's a problem you know and here's some facts Hmm. you're your your relationship is broken with god because you're a sinner and not you know you're you're doing you're you have to reason. And so all of that should be organic, which is why I, I'm not a, sometimes I try to say, you know, there's really the difference between apologetics and evangelism or preaching or just ministering to someone, even if it's yourself, you know, like it, it, that's a distinction that gets lost. That's just, 
not there when you get down ultimately mm. to it. Yeah, yeah. And so these are just, these are things, so arguments are important, but if you think that the sterile premise conclusion kinds of things are the way to go and that's how people live and think, that's going to go poorly for you and most likely. And you really, you need to be ready as Paul said, and you need to be able to, I mean, he says about one particular thing, but we do need to be ready generally to answer people's questions. Hmm. And if, most of us, if not all of us, have very, there's an unbeliever in everybody's heart. Like, I don't know about you, but I wouldn't need anybody else to trip me up in my faith. I'm sufficient enough to do that on my own. I'm yeah. really good at it. Yeah. So you, you have to know these things not for you. So it's not just this, these aren't dry, these are this is knowing about God's world, how he's made humans, his relationship with us in the world. And it's all one big coherent story. And the more you fill it out, and I, I, I usually tell, you know, I tell my students this, the best apologetic is learning more and more and more and fitting it all together so that your education and your lifelong education, not just your formal education, your lifelong learning, you could be talking about Shakespeare over here, and then maybe an hour later, you're talking about quantum mechanics, and you haven't changed the subject because it's all interrelated. If God is all in that big coherent picture, and all of it makes sense because of, makes best sense because there's a God, there's, you know, Christianity is true, and all of that, and you know how to relate it to almost everything, that's strong. Hmm, That's yeah. much stronger than, hey, I've got this argument, the cosmological argument. Cosmological argument, if that's all you have, or you know, some particular argument, that's weak. Hmm. Hmm. But when everything's, your whole life is integrated into one thing and it all makes sense because, it makes best sense because Christianity is true, that's a lot, that's a lot stronger. Well, Mitch, thank you so much for taking some time today to talk with us about uh, how to talk to an atheist, how to understand uh, what they're thinking, and, and how to hopefully ask some good questions. I appreciate you having me. This has been fun. That was Mitch Stokes on the problems with an atheistic worldview. For more, be sure to check out his book with Crossway, How to Be an Atheist, Why Many Skeptics Aren't Skeptical Enough. Pick up your copy of the book for 30% off directly from Crossway by visiting crossway.org plus. That's crossway.org plus. For more interviews like this, subscribe to the Crossway podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast player. If you enjoyed this episode, would you leave us a review? That helps us spread the word about the show. Crossway is a not-for-profit Christian ministry that exists solely for the purpose of proclaiming the truth of God's Word through publishing gospel-centered content. Visit us today at crossway.org.